This is GSAP Conversations from the Graduate School of Architecture, Planning and Preservation at Columbia University in New York City. I'm Dean Amal Andraus. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Sritama from the AAD program. And I'm Yuling from the Embark program. And we are the hosts for the new series of podcasts this fall. This Friday, we're in the making studio kicking off the semester with product designers Nefemi Marcus Bello from Nigeria and Tabisa Amjo from South Africa, who consider themselves to be more like storytellers. They will take us on their journey of integrating their cultural heritage and craftsmanship in Africa to create local economic viability. You are listening to Giuseppe Faculty Mfo Masipa, who organized the event Building Cultures, in dialogue with Nefemi and Tabisa. Hi, my name is Mpo Matipa. I am an adjunct assistant professor at GSAP, Columbia University. I'm also a researcher and a lecturer at the University of the Witwatersrand in South Africa and a design curator. So my name is Tavisa Mcho. I am the founder of Mesh Tea Design Studio, um, which is a furniture design company based in Johannesburg, South Africa. I've been quite struck by, by your engagement with um, culture. And, and the role of culture in the kind of furniture pieces that you design. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that, particularly the Shabisa chair, which is uh, an incredibly beautiful object, but that also has a very long and deep history that's tied into all kinds of memories and cultural practices for you. Jeez, okay. Um, So my design philosophy um, is about promoting, celebrating um, our heritage and our crafts and our cultures. Um, And so whenever I design a new product or, yeah, product, (laughs) um, I always go back to my memory box and I think about things that made me feel a sense of... um, joy, um, the sense of home when I was a kid. And all of those things are always linked to memories that are about, I don't know, like memories that happened or things, sorry, that happened like within my family unit. And so I feel like even people who aren't of the same culture as myself um, also feel or get a sense, when they look at a piece, get a sense of Um, the themes that I was exploring or the themes that inspired that piece. Because the themes are always universal, right? And those themes include home, joy, um, fellowship, togetherness. So with the Shabisa bench, how that started out, again, I went back into my memory box and I thought of um, home (laughs) and um, I thought of my grandmother. So my grandmother lived in uh, KwaZulu-Natal, which is a province in South Africa. And whenever we would go visit her, she would always bring out this three-legged cast iron pot. And these are pots that women um, will use to cook over an open fire with. Because she lived in rural KwaZulu-Natal, so there was no running water, there was no electricity. So they obviously cooked over an open fire. And so this pot for me always symbolized joy because um, she would be preparing, she only brings it out when she prepares a feast. And so us coming to visit her was always like a celebration. And so when I was uh, um, designing the Shabisa bench, I thought of the form 
of this three-legged cast iron pot. So it's obviously round. So if you look at the bench, which I encourage you all to go on my Instagram, Mashti Design Studio, to go look at the bench. Um, <laughs> if you look at the bench, it's literally this boji, that's what it's called, cut in half. And we've raised the back, we've raised the backrest, um, so that when you're sitting in the bench, you feel like you're in a cocoon. Mm-hmm. So it feels like, and it feels like the bench is giving you a hug. And I didn't make that up. People have said that to me. <laughs> it feels like the bench is giving you a hug. And so you feel the warmth. You feel reception, like that warm welcome. Um, and it's also about conversations, right? Because it's a three-seater, and you almost, it almost sort of encourages, not almost it does encourage people, the people together. who are sitting on it. Exactly, together, exactly. And so once the bench was done, I collaborated with Houtlander on the bench. Houtlander are incredible furniture um, designers as well from South Africa. And once we had made the structure, um, it needed something else, <laughs> you know? It needed like that thing, like that X factor, like that X factor. And so we're thinking about, okay, where is the memory? Like what inspired this bench? What is the context? KwaZulu Natal. And so the form is the boji, the three-legged cast iron part. And if you look at the back of the, if you look at the backrest, um, it almost looks like a wave. And that wave is actually the landscape, the rolling hills of KwaZulu Natal. And so we're like, okay, cool. What will finish this piece off is weaving the backrest. And KwaZulu Natal is known for the most incredible basket weaving using ilala palm. And ilala palm is a type of grass. Um, and so we knew that we had to find a master weaver, a master Zulu weaver, to weave the backrest. One of the things that, that has struck me about your practice um, is, is the way in which you, you hold space for your collaborators. So there's a very intentional um, uh, project of acknowledging and recognizing and celebrating the contributions of the various people that you collaborate in the project with mm-hmm. and, and the significance of KwaZulu Natal and the fact that weaving is such a woman-centered yeah. uh, craft and you yourself as a designer are entering into a space that in many ways is kind of male-dominated yeah. is fascinating to me. So I, w- I wanted to know if you had any further thoughts around... Um, what you think the ethics of these kinds of collaborations are for you in an ideal situation? Or how did you work through, uh, because, you know, there are many people who've worked with um, artisans and craft workers for contemporary furniture pieces before, but what is it that you felt was really important as part of this work with master weavers because mum beauty's work is also collected in the smithsonian so yeah. it's an honor for you too yeah, to, exactly. <laughs> to so have her as clear, a collaborator so being clear on that right being clear that i am not doing mum beauty a favor <laughs> um and that she's not adding a decorative element to the bench mm-hmm. no her work is what gives the bench soul her work is what gives the bench that like, damn, how the hell did they get to that? <laughs> and, and that goes for all of the craftspeople that I work with. And I think also like for me, just being clear on um, this is what sets my work apart from, and not just my work, like all of South African design. 
um, the use, the way we have used craft, the way we continue to use craft in our work, is what sets us apart from other designers. Um, that's our design language that we are still developing. Um, and so it's so important for us to bring those people along and we teach each other. And also, um, for a very long time in South Africa, people who artisans um, have always been regarded as low-skilled labor, which obviously is such a fallacy. <laughs> and so with our... Okay, so I'm going to go deep, but it's the truth. Like with our history, a lot of the artisans, a lot of the craftspeople, who are obviously like a lot of them are black, um, they did not have the same opportunities that my generation has. Mm -hmm. So they weren't able to dream as big as we can dream and then go out there and chase their dreams. Um, and so what I'm very much aware of and what I'm trying to promote is to say, okay, cool, your parents, your grandparents um, were not able to give you a financial inheritance because of the circumstances that they found themselves in, living in South Africa at the time. Colonialism. Uh, colonialism, apartheid, apartheid exactly. Um, however, what they did give you is your heritage. So the skills, that craft skills, a lot of them uh, were taught that by their grandparents, by their mothers and, and so forth. And so I'm saying use your heritage as your inheritance. Use your heritage to create economic opportunities for yourself and own it. So you've talked a bit about um, how so much of your own design practice is very much invested in this idea of entrepreneurship um, and your desire to um, really raise the visibility of South African design communities on a global stage. And I'm wondering how this um, concern for heritage um, and also entrepreneurship comes together in terms of maybe your future plans or projects that you're currently involved with. Mm. So one of the really cool things that came out of um, our collaboration with the Beauty Ngongo is, um, so after she saw the bench and we were all like so happy and it was incredible and it's a masterpiece and all those wonderful things, she said to me, I wish this had happened when I was younger, that way I would have more time to expand on this craft, to expand on this technique and see where else I could apply it. Because for the longest time, they only ever made um, round forms <laughs> because they believed that the technique only works in round forms. Mm -hmm. um, and so even having that, even like having her say that to me and having her come to that realization that my, your technique <laughs> doesn't only work in round forms. You can apply it in so many other different ways to create economic opportunities for yourself. That's one way of having the conversation of like empowering people and encouraging entrepreneurship. Future plans. Future plans. Oh no, it's daunting, right? Like to think about that because I don't. Cause I don't know what's going to happen. Like I want to build a sustainable, profitable business, but I don't know in what form that's going to come. In. And that's fine too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like if that's where you are, that's where you are. I, yeah. And I think that that will emerge over time. I hope so. <laughs> I have no doubt. What, does the, what do you want the world to know? What do you want New York to know about Mashti Design Studio? Or even just about you? I consider myself more of a storyteller than a designer. 
and the medium that I use to tell those stories is design. And so what I always think about is I'm, I don't want to be limited. I don't want to limit myself to only um, designing products. <laughs> you know, I'm a storyteller who, tell, who uses design to tell those stories, and I want to create economic opportunities for the people that I represent. Hi, my name is uh, Nifemi Marcus Bello. Um, I'm an industrial designer based in Lagos, Nigeria. Uh, I run an eponymous design studio and we design products, furniture and experience. Welcome uh, to GSAP. It's so good to have you here in New York. Um, and I'm thinking about uh, the, our first meeting in Lagos almost exactly a year, no, less than a year ago. It was December yes, last year where I yes. came to visit your studio and I'm such a huge fan of the work that you do. Just very quickly, just tell me a little bit about your, your training. How did you become, I know this is obvious, but how did you become an industrial designer? So actually, I think my industrial design journey started really, really young, but I didn't realize what industrial design was or what design was. Um, at age 13, I was really lucky to have uh, a welding apprenticeship between school. And then at age 14 as well, I had a carpentry apprenticeship and in various boroughs in uh, Lagos. And I think at 15, I realized I just wanted to make things. Um, and I thought being an architect would be <laughs> the closest thing to that. Um, and I realized I wasn't that good at maths when I got into university. And during my foundation year, I just stumbled onto product design, luckily enough. And it's something that has driven like my day-to-day -day life since um, my first year at university. The way I think, how my practice um, functions as well. Can you tell me a little bit about um, what it means to practice as a product designer in Lagos? It's interesting. I mean, it's tough because they're extremes. Uh, Lagos is still an emerging market. Um, they're very, there are loads of constraints around, but I think as an industrial designer, um, contemporary industrial designer in Lagos, one beautiful thing about it is figuring out a way to basically embrace these constraints um, and exploit them. You talk a, a lot about uh, constructive exploitation and also making a dent in the system, and I'm quite struck by the way in which you think about making at a systemic level um, and the way that you intersect with existing infrastructures in Lagos, which has its own history of industrialization and manufacturing. So one of the things that I find fascinating about your project is the way that you're reimagining other ecologies around uh, making and industrialization in Lagos. Can you just tell me a bit more about that? Um, so I can give you an example. I think a very interesting product that we did, I think about two years ago, that you've fallen in love with is the LM store. One thing I realized in Lagos with that project was that there's manufacturing going on all around Lagos, but designers tend to want to dictate what production techniques should be used instead of embracing the ones that are already there. I think one thing that that product taught me was basically embracing manufacturing processes and assembly lines that are available in emerging economies. And the reason for that is, if you approach a manufacturer or a factory and you tell them, hey, we can design around your production technique and you don't have to change your assembly line or bring in um, new infrastructure, I think they're quicker to embrace you and say, okay, we'll give it a go if we don't really have to do much. 
So can you just tell me a bit more about how this rethinking existing manufacturing processes has changed um, the maker ecology in Lagos so far? Because, I mean, that's, that's the significance, in a way, of the LM stool, that it, yeah. it is a beautiful object, but yeah. the process of its making, the social relations that had to be negotiated in order for it to come into the world, yeah. and the networks and relationships that emerged from this um, activity has, has had a ripple effect in your community, right? Yeah, I think the most important thing to, um, that we did was basically educate every single stakeholder involved with that product. So letting them know that we actually didn't know what product we were going to make, but we wanted to figure out how to create economic viability through what was there. And what we did was basically say, okay, we're going to sit around a table uh, and speak to people, the manufacturers, the engineers in the, um, in the manufacturing offices, and also even speak to their marketers and say, okay, we're going to create a product that's totally different from what you've done before. And we're going to try and bring it to the world and see how, what possibilities might come out of it. And it's interesting because I think for the first two months after the product came out, from the studio's point of view, it didn't do too well. But afterwards, they started picking up and a lot of, we've sold more stools internationally than locally. locally. So I think with economic viability, it also makes tremendous sense because the designer's happy, the manufacturer's happy that they're getting orders. And even the users are happy because there's a story behind it. They understand that, okay, this was a manufacturing technique that's, that's sort of new to Nigeria, but has, has existed for the past like five to 10 years it's just been used for generator casings a few other like little electrical components here and there for generators as well so i think it's an interesting approach it's sort of changed the dynamic and the way that we think in the studio now right and i i'm I'm also thinking about the work that you have done with kenneth Ize for um, paris fashion week in the way that you reconceptualized the weaving loom yes um, do you want to tell me a little bit more about that as a process and also your concern for culture and storytelling as an integral part of how you think about? Uh, so Kenneth's project was really, really interesting. He actually approached us because um, he got nominated for the LVMH Prize this year and wanted to create an installation in Paris. And after a great deal of conversation, he told me his weavers were having issues weaving um, and he didn't know how to improve their experience of some sorts. And after that conversation, I said, you know what, let's sit with the weavers and have a full-on conversation and see what the issues are and if it's something that we can fix. And the reason why I said that was because I didn't just want us to design a new product and create a dent in the system and affect the ecosystem of like the makers who actually make the looms, the current looms. And I wanted us to sit with as many people involved as possible to figure out, okay, how can it be a collaborative process to design this product? And what we did was basically bring all the weavers into the studio, sat with Kenneth. They used the old looms, told us what the issues were, told us parts of the looms that couldn't be touched because they had historical meaning to it. So for example, um, there's a bamboo structure that goes um, over it, but we couldn't really touch that because the bamboo farmers had been doing have um, have a relationship with the weavers for generations, and we weren't we didn't want to disrupt that in that sense. But every other part, they said okay, it was fine. They outsourced it to local carpenters here and there, and they'd be happy to actually 
show the local carpenters the new designs to see if they could implement it. So I think it was amazing because it was more of a community coming together to create a solution and not just one person dictating what the direction would be. And they were the ones, the weavers were the ones dictating to us what constraints they were, um, sitting down with us as well to also iterate here and there after testing. I think that it's incredible that you're so concerned with um, a very collaborative design process with both uh, the users and the makers of the artifacts that you design. And one of, I mean, we've had a number of conversations about the kind of ecosystem that you think is necessary to, co- to create conditions of possibility for the kind of work that you do. So I think in a very long-winded way, what I want to ask is, in your ideal scenario, what could the future of design making be in a dynamic city like Lagos? I think it doesn't, you don't need a lot. I don't think we really do need a lot. I think, I know we don't, definitely don't have 24-hour electricity. <laughs> Our roads have, we have issues with urban planning, etc. But I think what we need is for large-scale makers to embrace designers and knowing fully well that with good design, it can create viability for their business and also create historical dent for their business and for Lagos as well. I think that as for young designers, one of the main issues that we're having is people understanding what the power of design is um, and how it can actually solve day-to-day problems. And also understanding the fact that design isn't really just, it's not, not to be offensive or offend anyone, it's not art. You have to have, there's aesthetics to it, aesthetics does have function as well, but people have to be able to use the product that you create. And if people can use that product, it will create viability in their day-to-day life. Which in itself is a kind of art of True. making. True. <laughs> True. <laughs> Well, thank you very much for for your time. And I'm really looking forward to your presentation and our discussion tomorrow. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. This podcast was produced by Columbia GSAP. You can find more information about the school on our website at arc.columbia.edu.